Megan, thank you so much. Uh, I'm really delighted to have this opportunity to talk with these two very impressive women today as part of this conference celebrating women in Homeland Security. I should note at the outset that we actually are recording this conversation on March 4th, and I understand it's going to be broadcast on March 11th, and we're going to start off with some timely news. So I wanted to make sure folks knew that this was recorded uh, and, and with without the benefit of knowing what's going to transpire over the coming week. Uh, but we do have some really interesting things to talk about with these women and some it's important insights into the work uh, of Homeland Security, in addition to kind of the role of women uh, in, in DHS and in this uh, Homeland Security enterprise. You know, DHS has the advantage, really, in a way, of having started anew in 2002 uh, when the department was created and not having that entrenched uh, culture uh, that so much of the national security community uh, you know, grew up and originated at a time when women were largely in clerical positions and security was almost exclusively a man's world. Um, and, and DHS, I think, had a bit of an advantage in starting up a little bit later. Now it brought in some of those entrenched cultures uh, and uh, for good and for bad into the department. Um, but DHS has done fairly well. And I, I just reflect on, on uh, my time at DHS. When I entered DHS, four of the five top posts at DHS were occupied by women. The secretary, the deputy secretary, uh, and three of the four undersecretaries, which is that third tier, of course. Um, statistically, uh, it, you know, we're still not where we need to be in terms of reflecting the, the, the percentage of women in, in the population. Um, but the statistics that I have, women represent about 32.7% of the DHS workforce. And I think that number is relatively low, largely because of the significant numbers of law enforcement uh, uh, within the DHS workforce, and that's still an area that is burdened by some preconceived notions, both in the population and, and in the workforce. But women are in 44% of leadership positions at DHS. And, and if you look at women in leadership positions across the country and in the federal government, that's a pretty good, pretty good statistic. So we'll talk a bit about that uh, with Kirsten, uh, particularly. I'm sure she's got some thoughts on that. But I thought we would start uh, today by talking about what is uh, so so forefront in the minds of, of all of us, and that is the, the horror that is unfolding in Ukraine and what the implications might be for our homeland security. And so, Kirsten, I want to ask you to start by filling us in a bit on the role that CISA has played over the last several weeks. And and the role that the president has recently asked the department to step up and lead with regard to making sure that we're prepared to effectively deal with the consequences of any retaliation. Thanks so much, Suzanne. It's great to be with you. And thank you for your leadership. Um, as you rightly point out with the agency starting in 2002, uh, DHS is a young agency, CIS is even younger, um, but it's as a young agency, we know so clearly how every moment is built on previous moments. And you were certainly a key leader in building us up to this place. And so thank you for, for all of your direction and guidance and service. As you rightly point out, um, you know, CISA has had a significant role, but importantly, recently when uh, with the 
uh, evolution of the crisis, the Secretary of Homeland Security designated CIS's Executive Director Brandon Wales as the senior response official for domestic preparedness in response to the current crisis. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security has been identified by the President as the lead federal agency to coordinate what is happening with across the agency, and particularly when we're looking at protecting the homeland and how do we defend ourselves. This is an interagency, it's a cross-sector challenge. So having that coordination is critical. And so the initial priorities of this role that uh, Brandon has been given is establishing this unified coordination group, uh, which he has done. And it actually played off of work that we had done starting at CISA and then to the agency uh, larger to make sure that we were all coordinated, understood how we would respond. It's sort of the evolution of, uh, of tabletop exercises. Uh, Brandon and the UCG are also responsible for developing the objectives, the priorities, identifying lines of effort, and establishing coordinating mechanisms, which is critical. And so CISA will continue to remain uh, laser focused on the efforts toward critical infrastructure security, resilience, cybersecurity uh, across the nation. And so much of this has to do with our industry government collaboration. Uh, what we know, as, as you know well, Suzanne, uh, so much of, of the threat comes both from industry um, and the vulnerability of industry networks, as well as the vulnerability of government networks. And so as we've looked at this threat, and we've actually been preparing for this since November, uh, and how do we harden the systems, CISA has been putting out a lot of communication, our Shields Up website, which is specifically talking about what companies and organizations of all sizes need to be doing to protect themselves. The good news there is that a lot of that isn't too sophisticated. It's starting with the basics in cyber hygiene, everything from enabling multi-factor authentication uh, to encryption and other elements. But it's really about having a heightened awareness right now and encouraging all entities, individuals, businesses to be doing the basics. And so as we adopt this heightened posture when it comes to cybersecurity and protecting critical assets, this is staying in close touch with industry, and I'll go into a little bit more of that partnership because it's been so critical to where we are today. Um, but right now, it's this uh, Department of Homeland Security is a lead federal agency closely connected with CISA, and importantly, an interagency coordination and collaboration that's going to be critical in ensuring that the United States is hardened and resilient and working collaboratively with our international partners. Kirsten, that's great uh, to hear all of the, the things. Of course, we've seen a lot of it's been very visible and certainly the shields up uh, uh, efforts. Um, it's so it's what I have found is that in government, when there is a crisis, the interagency comes together and everybody does what needs to be done. The key will be, can we institutionalize some of the good lessons that we're learning uh, from this interagency uh, cohesiveness around this crisis. And really important is, you know, how is this looking from the private sector? And Nicole, we're so grateful uh, that you made time to join us today. You bring such an important perspective and you're in your career, you have touched on some of these key critical infrastructure sectors. You've worked with them, you understand them. And, and so I'm really interested in your perspective. Um, how effective do you think CISA's warnings and its guidance have been uh, in this context? Thank you, Suzanne and um, Kirsten. Great to be on with you. And, um, you know, on, first, I'd like to say on behalf of our CEO, um, Bill McDermott, and um, our 17,000 employees around the world, um, this, it, this conversation is so critically important. And our hearts, um, you know, our prayers and thoughts go out to the families 
uh, affected uh, by what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, you know, we're praying for our military and our leaders who are making, you know, critically important decisions such as Kirsten um, and, and others and our president, et cetera. And so, you know, CIS is doing a fantastic job. Um, we know that information sharing is very important. Um, and, you know, as the White House Cybersecurity Director has recently uh, shared in various articles and um, conversations that resiliency is very important and embedding resiliency in our infrastructure at the outset um, it is something that we need to consider um, and it's almost it has almost become a mandate. Yeah, uh, terrific, Nicole. Thank you. And you know, it's been really interesting. I think in the context again of this crisis that's unfolding, uh, to see how thin the line can be sometimes between. Uh, government action and the private sector role, even in prosecuting uh, this the the actions against Russia, for example, and we've we've seen Microsoft step up and do things that normally you know you would look to government uh, and 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 the uh, the social media platforms and the cybersecurity firms that are offering their assistance. So, um, Kirsten, how how do you look at this this We've talked for years about <clears throat> public-private partnership. This is kind of a unique uh, situation, isn't it? It absolutely is. And obviously, Suzanne, you know this well. And just we've had this term public-private partnership for so long. Um, and you know, when Jen did her Black Hat speech to the director of CISA back in August, she talked about it as a hackneyed term because it is one of these things that has sort of lost its meaning. And one of the priorities of Jen and CISA right now is really looking at how do we move beyond this partnership to operational collaboration. And the key vehicle for this was the launch of the Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative, which is an idea that came out of the Solarium Commission. And what this is, is it brings together industry partners with government to share in real time information. And we've developed communications channels for this. And this is a, a group that will deliberately grow. But what's been very important is just this real time exchange. And so you talk about the Microsoft issue and actually what we're seeing is a lot of companies have done that. Microsoft is part of this, but a lot of companies are part of this as well. And being able to put forth, hey, this is what we're seeing. These are the vulnerabilities we're seeing, or this is the unusual activity that we're seeing. One of CIS's uh, big calls to action is to really lower the threshold for reporting. And this joint cyber defense collaborative has provided an opportunity to share anomalies and to work in real time to take that information. And then you marry that up with the government's intelligence. And there's a, a greater, more pieces to the puzzle that are being that are coming together. And this, I think what has been so striking, and we saw this with Log4j, which was the vulnerability that was uh, uh, revealed in December, that even if it's asking the questions together, so coming together and having industry and government say, this is what we're seeing, this isn't what's making sense, this isn't what uh, we're, we're able to understand, having that type of conversation, and when you marry all the pieces together, you start to get greater situational awareness. And so we've been very grateful to the industry participation, and they similarly have been pleased with the type of uh, communication and the response that they're seeing from government. And, you know, Suzanne, as you know, so much of this is about that real-time activity. Uh, the challenge to government in the past has been Yes, you've given us information, but you've given it to us, you know, way too late where it's no longer relevant. And we've actually seen most of that. But when it's real time like this, particularly in a crisis like the one that we're in right now, this type of back and forth, even if something doesn't turn out to be significant or substantive or even valid, 
it's the awareness of, okay, these are the types of tools, techniques, procedures we should be looking out for. These are the vulnerabilities we're seeing more of. CISA just uh, released yesterday uh, an increase of uh, identification of over 90 known exploited vulnerabilities that we are concerned Russia is going to be using and, and exploiting. It's not that these vulnerabilities are new, but what we're seeing is that these are ones that Russia will be more inclined to expose. And so just even that information, and that's a list that obviously is, is aggregated, not just from CISA and government intelligence, but also with our industry partnership. So coming from the outside into this, it was one of the key elements of how do we do this better? And I will say I've been incredibly impressed and just really pleased with how industry and government have come together so quickly. I will also sh share, Suzanne, because I think, you know, you'll appreciate this, is it's also the point in time that we're in. You know, I've thought to myself, is the JCDC something that could have happened 10 years ago? I'm not sure that it could have, because we are at a different point in time where we recognize to, um, Nicole cited uh, the Office of the National Cyber Director, uh, Chris Inglis, the director. One of the other things that he says is in order to be one of us, you have to be all of us. That mentality is an evolution. It's the recognition that we cannot defend ourselves as an independent organization, company, agency, that we have to do this together. And that joint effort is one that I think we've certainly seen grow even over the last year with the uh, the threats and the and the uh, events that have come up. So we are at a unique time. And what is very gratifying and important is that industry and government are truly coming together in the recognition not of just resilience in peacetime, but importantly, resilience in this geopolitical crisis. Yeah, that's just uh, terrific to see. And, and again, I, you know, something where I hope we can very quickly capture lessons learned and institutionalize some of the, the uh, forward progress that is made because you do alter in a time of crisis, your, your cost benefit analysis, your risk tolerance, right? For the kinds of things that you worried about. Um, and I think what, you know, your description of the uh, latest information that CISA has put out on likelihood, right? What, which of the, which of, of, of the vast, you know, sea of vulnerabilities that we've asked folks to pay attention to, uh, I know that it's been a, 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 a priority for CISA to help both its government uh, stakeholders and, and non-government folks prioritize. And, and we know that is likelihood and consequence, right? A factor of the likelihood and the consequence, the likelihood that an adversary will exploit that particular vulnerability. So I think that, that should be hugely helpful to the folks who are getting that information and trying to, to prioritize scarce resources. But the other piece of that is consequences. And that's where I think resilience, Nicole, you talked about the importance of resilience. I certainly felt that was one of the most important parts of the Solarium report was the pillar on resilience and strengthening resilience. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about that and the challenge, um, you know, what is it that, that you would look to the federal government to help to, with in terms of private sector resilience? That's a great question, Suzanne. Well, first of all, we know that the White House uh, released last year in May its executive order on cybersecurity. And so um, I'd say the, the answer is, uh, in short form, is leadership. Um, setting the tone for how the government should work with the private sector. Um, and, th and that ranges from, uh, as, we've, as we've read, there's an expectation of ensuring that these platforms, these clouds, 
that we operate as companies are secure. And so if we're going to work with the federal government, if we are going to uh, have business customers uh, and you know, those customers range from hospitals and schools and, and uh, corporations that have sensitive data, Right. Um, and in order to do that, there has to be some sort of leadership. The tone has to be set in terms of what our systems, what, what sort of equipment we should have, what sort of software should we have, where should it come from? Um, just as, you know, when we're eating a certain type of, of food, we often will look at, and as you mentioned women, uh, we often look at, you know, the caloric content, how much sugar, how, you know, how much protein. And so we should know what our infrastructure, uh, our software and our hardware, we should have an inventory of what we have. And, and so having that sort of prescriptive guidance uh, as outlined uh, in the executive order is, is really helpful. And, and so that leadership is phenomenal for us. Um, we are in position, getting in position, uh, looking at, you know, the White House has had a few sessions on open source software. What does that mean? How do companies like ours, how are we impacted by that? What systems of ours are vulnerable? And we, we call that a CMDB. So do federal agencies have uh, a CMDB? Do, do these agencies know what is in their inventory? Uh, if they don't know, how can the private sector help them uh, so that they can catalog that inventory so that we do know, you know, if, if other countries are targeting certain vulnerabilities that governments in the private sector has, how can the private and public sector work together so that we have a catalog of that, we regain our offense, right? So, Kirsten, I want to give you a chance to answer. We, we, you know, Nicole had some questions there about whether what the federal government has and is doing, uh, even as she applauded the leadership. I want to give you a chance to address that. But I also would ask you to speak to, uh, you know, how CISA having the mission for critical infrastructure against all hazards uh, helps in the resilience analysis and thinking about ways to mitigate consequences <clears throat> in the real world, understanding cascading consequences and mitigating those consequences. Um, a lot of people don't realize that CISA is not just cyber. And as you can appreciate, it's something as we brand and uh, really work with the workforce to understand that everybody is critical to the mission because it is cyber and physical critical infrastructure and they're so inextricably linked. And you raise a really interesting point, Suzanne, and uh, building off of Nicole's comments, which is I was doing some work on infrastructure and cyber protection and was talking to a senior leader of a bank in Europe who said, I don't measure my success by what I've prevented. I measure my success by how I respond when something happens. And I think that really is one of the key tenets of resilience. And part of that also is how we prioritize critical infrastructure. And so uh, back in uh, 2018, when the uh, National Risk Management Center was launched, it's a component of CISA, it's really looking at critical infrastructure and systemically important critical infrastructure, and how do we prioritize that infrastructure? And I think that is a key piece to looking at all of this, is how we work together to create that resilience, to create the redundancy. One of the challenges and the opportunities that we have had over the last few years in recent memory is that the interconnectedness and the interdependencies of our infrastructure really create almost a blurred line between what is critical and what is not. Uh, one of the things that I worked on earlier was the development of the NIST Voluntary Cybersecurity Framework, and this was back in 2013, 2014. And when we were looking at that, that was very much about critical infrastructure. And what we would say is this is not about the mom and pop pizza shop on the corner. This is about critical infrastructure. 
If you fast forward just a couple of years in 2016, I was uh, executive director of President Obama's Commission on Cybersecurity. One of the commissioners uh, was Ajay Banga, the CEO of MasterCard. And one of our issues was small business security. And he said, it absolutely has become about the mom and pop pizza shop on the corner because they are now connected to our financial sector through Square, through different types of financial infrastructure that is connected. That point being that we now have this broader set of infrastructure. And so part of CIS's mission is to identify how do we rank what is critical? Because if you prioritize everything, you're not prioritizing anything. How do we rank that criticality, but ensure that we've built that resilience throughout the infrastructure? Uh, and that is becoming more and more important also as more businesses come online. I mean, you mentioned the role of social media in the Ukraine-Russia crisis. And I think one of the interesting pieces to this is while they started as tech companies, I would assert in my own personal capacity that social media has become critical infrastructure. And when we look at how we rely upon it for communications and the role that it's had. So we are seeing a real evolution through technology in our infrastructure. And so prioritizing that infrastructure and ensuring resilience throughout is obviously is a critical priority for, uh, for CISA. Yeah, and I appreciate you know your openness to thinking about the term critical infrastructure. I think so often we get so hung up on this organizational construct that we came up with of the sector coordinating councils. If it doesn't fit neatly into one of those, it must not be critical infrastructure. Uh, well, no, go back to the definition, right, of critical infrastructure. Don't get so hung up on that. Yeah. And even if the definition proves not to to really capture everything that we think uh, is in fact of national importance that we need to pay attention to. I, I sometimes struggle with people saying, well, protection of, of, of elections is now part of critical infrastructure, but protection of other democratic institutions or democracy itself or, or thinking about the resilience of those is not critical infrastructure. I think we need to think carefully about that. Um, because certainly uh, disruption of public trust in democracy and democratic institutions would have a significant impact on our national security. I, I just wanted to add, I wanted to piggyback off of a comment that you made about it's not just about cybersecurity, right? It's when we think about critical infrastructure and, and as we think about COVID, um, you know, what was impacted by COVID, right? What gets impacted if there's some sort of threat to, uh, to our technology and to, you know, to, to buildings and to, to roads and bridges? Our people are impacted by it, right? So at, at its core, it's people are impacted. And, and then you ask, how are they impacted? If they're not able to get to work or they're not able to access unemployment benefits at a time that they need, that they desperately needed, or they're, you know, veterans benefits or you, you name it, access to education because, you know, children have, you know, and some, many of them still have to use, you know, their laptops and have access to broadband. Um, and so technology is, you know, at the center of, of, of everything that we do. Nicole, it's such a great point that you make about remembering what this is really at the end of the day all about, right? It's not the networks and systems we care about. It's the functions they enable and the impact of those disruptions on people and on people's lives. And I do think that this is one of the reasons making, you know, keeping a focus and really understanding who is impacted most and in what ways by the kinds of disruptions and, and, uh, and malicious cyber activity that we're trying to prevent is, is, is one of the reasons why I think it is so important to have a diverse workforce that you have a, a, a variety of life experiences in the room when decisions are being made. Um, Kirsten, what what you know? Talk to us a bit about how uh, CISA thinks about 
the importance of a diverse and inclusive workforce in carrying out CISA's mission? Thanks, Suzanne. This is absolutely a priority for CISA, uh, both building out its own workforce, but also in building out a national workforce when it comes to cybersecurity. And when we look at this, this is not just looking at one or two traits. Um, when we look at diversity, I, I appreciate what you said because it's very much about diversity of thinking. And that comes from race, gender, socioeconomic background, cultural background. We're actually launching a neurodiversity initiative that I hope eventually will be truly integrated into how we hire. Because when we think about cybersecurity, what is required is imagination and innovation. And those two pieces come from diversity of perspective. And if we're truly going to look at building solutions and problem solving, we need individuals who are looking at these problems differently. And whether it's because they are neurodistinct, they have a different background, they look at something because of their experiences and how they've been raised, it's bringing all of these different elements together. And I'll share just a quick anecdote, which has stuck with me. And You'll be familiar with the uh, the cyber moonshot, Suzanne, through the NSAC. And in working on it a few years ago, when we were looking at the cyber moonshot, which was to secure the internet by 2030, uh, we brought in an individual who was from the United States Agency for International Development. And she talked about this effort that they have called a grand challenge. And this is where you put out a very ambitious goal, very concrete goal, and figure out how to get there. And one of the grand challenges that she referenced was the development of the Ebola suit. And she was talking about how they auditioned individuals to help bring together to think through how to do this. And one of the key uh, designers of that suit on their team ended up being a woman who was a wedding dress designer. And the idea there was that she understood the breathability of fabric, how to move in uncomfortable clothing. But that really goes to this idea of diversity of thinking and how can we pull in people from different perspectives to truly integrate and contribute to this problem. And again, you know, going to a an, very inclusive workforce, what we're looking at how, is how do we become less exclusive, more inclusive, and pull in aptitudes from sociology, psychology, history, economics, politics, because it's not just about math, science, and engineering. That's obviously a key piece, but we've got to be thinking about these problems innovatively. One other point that I'll make is part of this is how do we recruit that talent? And we can't just look to traditional means. We've got to go into the communities, go to where the talent is. So we've partnered with organizations like Girls Who Code and Empower, who are serving underserved communities and minorities, specifically focused on minority girls and women, and working with them to recruit that talent. We're going to community colleges, to vocational schools, looking at what diversity of talent means and not just saying it, but again, going to where the talent is and not just expecting that individuals are going to be able to go on the internet and find our postings, but really articulating what we're doing, how we're doing it, and meeting the talent and meeting this diversity where it is. We certainly have a long way to go, but it's, it is absolutely a priority and something that we are pushing our own innovation and imagination uh, to achieve. That's great to hear, Kirsten. I'm I know that you guys have also been talking with Girl Security, which uh, I have the honor of being on their board. Uh, you know, they're talking to high school girls, introducing them in many cases to the concept of national security, to to broaden the pipeline and the the number of of girls and women who are interested in this field. Um, Nicole, it's an issue in the private sector as well, obviously. And I, uh, again, going back to your emphasis on resilience, I think a diverse workforce increases your resilience as well, the resilience of your workforce. 
Um, but but talk to us a little bit about you know what you see on the private sector side in terms of the the value of diversity and what and, and inclusion, maintaining that workforce and providing an environment in which they everyone can, as we say, bring their best selves to the table. Um, what kinds of things are being done? Absolutely, and and I I I start out by I want to start out by saying that um, we have to be intentional about. Uh, these efforts to recruit um, and retain, and 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 so and how do we do that? And and you're right, Kirsten. The work that you all are doing at DHS and with Sissa to to reach out to these different organizations are um, just essential. Uh, and and so we have a phenomenal program at ServiceNow called NextGen. We train students, veterans, you know, graduates um, uh, with the just the top you know, skills and equip them with the knowledge that they need to prepare for these jobs that we need now and, and that we need in the future. And we do that by reaching out to, you know, universities that are largely underrepresented uh, across uh, the country. Uh, and we're, we're doing this globally. We're working through different organizations. We're reaching out to veterans. And what I really like about our, our program at ServiceNow is that we're not just teaching them how to code. And I have a professor who makes me laugh when he talks about this um, from, from college who says, you know, lots of companies are offering, you know, girls can code, dogs can code, cats can code, and then that's it. And, and so the, the awesome thing about ServiceNow's NextGen program is we're teaching them to code, we're teaching them other really important skills, and we are opening up the doors for opportunities to get internships uh, and a job you know, after, you know, they have an internship, if that's where they are, depending upon the level, and, and they get one, they get these opportunity, opportunities to work not only with ServiceNow, or with, but within our ecosystem. You know, we work with over 80% of Fortune 500 companies and over 300 federal agencies and sub-agencies, and so the opportunities are vast. So as we talk about inclusion, um, access, retention, it's also about influence. And, and so once we have these opportunities and we are in these spaces where the underrepresented can see us um, in these, these jobs, right? These important jobs that are helping make decisions about how the world works, um, that we, we can help them realize that they too can have, have these opportunities uh, and that they can work with government they can work with, you know, in the private sector and reaching out to all types of universities, um, uh, you know, the HBCUs, uh, making sure that, that the big ones, the smaller ones, you know, the, the Ohio states of the world where I graduated from um, and, and all sorts of universities, um, just working through organizations that are training young people and veterans and those who have to be reskilled. Outstanding. Uh, so, uh, Kirsten, Nicole has just in a very inspiring way talked about the importance of not just uh, teaching technical skills, but that empowerment um, about, you know, uh, how you assert yourself uh, at the table and make sure your your views are heard um, with just a you know minute or so that we have left here. Um, I want to give you a chance to very briefly, whatever, uh, what is your best advice for uh, particularly for for girls and women who are uh, you know, thinking of entering into this workforce or are in this workforce and are struggling to find the best, best way to move their career, their path forward? I think that women have a tendency to opt out. They self-select out. And my advice would be that this is such a broad and diverse space that if you have an aptitude that you love in all, in, in all uh, likelihood, that aptitude is relevant to this space. And so one of the things that 
I used to do when I was younger, but I still do it in many ways when we look at different elements of this, of this space. Identify that which you're interested in and talk to the people who are doing it. Give them a call. I think one of the things about workforce and where we are today at the end of the day is there's, there is a lot of goodwill as we're looking to build this workforce. And I know particularly women wanting to support other women. And so I really encourage young women to pick up the phone, send an email. And if you don't get a response, just try again. I mean, everybody's busy and inundated. But to identify that which you're really interested in, what you love, and figure out where you can place that. And I, you know, I saw one of the audience questions about I'm not outgoing. How can I be more outgoing? I think embrace who you are because what this is is this is a diverse workforce, and this issue area requires so many capabilities and types of personalities that who you are and what you love actually absolutely has a place in this. And so to believe in yourself, to know that you can do this job, you can do this work and look for those who you see have similar traits as you do to understand their path. Um, but don't discourage yourself and please don't self-select out. I think that's to me when I hear uh, women, girls say, oh, it's not right or I'm not good at that. It's know what you're good at, develop that, but develop the love that you have. And when you have that, then find a place for it because I can guarantee you there absolutely is a place for what you do and what you love. All right. Nicole, would you like to jump in on this one? Sure. We just need to keep reaching out to others and being accessible to, to others. And as I mentioned earlier, when young women uh, can see us in these positions, it, it inspires them to realize that they can they can be whatever they want to be. And, and we have so many great social media tools and can reach each other. Just contact people and ask questions, learn as much as possible, because we're not here by accident and we are here to help and bring others along. And, and so the more that we do that, um, the more success we'll see uh, in, in this workforce. Outstanding. Well, you have both certainly inspired me, uh, someone at the end of her career. Uh, and I have no doubt that you have inspired uh, the women who are uh, watching and listening to this program. So I just am so grateful to both of you for making time uh, for this program. And, uh, and thank you uh, to our sponsors for, for having this wonderful conference. Thank you, Suzanne. Thanks, Nicole.